0: Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. Now, if I was to say the one thing, the one topic that's on everybody's lips right now that isn't Donald Trump, it's Bitcoin. So I put my opinions forward on Bitcoin in a recent episode. This episode, I've brought in a Bitcoin expert. So in a moment, you're going to come with me to an interview, a very deep dive, very practical, granular, and also, and this is important, a very balanced, neutral interview on Bitcoin. So I think it's important to not get too pro or anti-Bitcoin. I think with all the emotions going on at the moment, where some people think it's the best thing ever and it's going to take over the world, and other people think it's an outright scam... How can we stay emotionally and intellectually balanced? I think this is very important if we're going to get out of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies what we want to get out of it as an entrepreneur. So Garrick Heilman, who you're going to hear from in a minute, he's done some keynote speeches for us. He's a lecturer at Cambridge University. He's best known for his research on monetary and distributed systems innovation. Bit of a mouthful, but it's, um, he's one of the early adopters in cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and the, um, the ledger technology, the blockchain technology behind cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. And in this interview, we talk a lot about not just about Bitcoin, but what cryptocurrency is, what the blockchain is, you know, and the technology behind it all. I think a lot of people just think Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. But actually, there's as Garrick will tell you there's over a thousand cryptocurrencies and there's new initial coin offerings going on virtually on a daily basis. We're going to a real deep dive, many questions about mining and how to invest in it. And like I said, a neutral, balanced pro and con debate on Bitcoin. If you've done your research on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, you must have heard of Garrick. He's regularly on BBC, CNBC, the FT, Wall Street Journal, Sky News. NPR also recently ranked him as one of the 100 most influential economists in the UK and Ireland. Let's get straight in to the interview on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and blockchain with Garrick Heilman.
1: Well, Garrick, thanks for doing the interview. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having
0: me. I don't think there's anything on social media at the moment, not even Trump, that's getting
1: talked about as much as Bitcoin. No, it's it's been amazing how much I spent the entire Thursday on the phone with media explaining what it is and and uh, what's happening, why the price dropped twenty percent in a period of minutes. Uh, just incredible interest, and and um, some days, you know, businesses like Coinbase are signing up over a hundred thousand people in a single day. So wow. there's, you know, a real uptick in in interest in cryptocurrency. Yeah. Why do you think? It's so highly talked about. People are getting excited about it.
0: And then on the other side, people think it's a scam. Why is it this thing that everyone's just interested in? You
1: know, I think it's a great point. There's just incredibly divergent views on, on is it you know, the future of money or is it a fraud? In the mm. words of Jamie Dimon, the CEO of, of J.P. Morgan, you know, one of the largest banks in the world. I think that kind of dichotomy is part of the reason it's being discussed yeah, uh, so a bit, much. A bit like you know, when people either love or hate a celebrity, they get a, talked about a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so the, the strong difference of views from people who are very credible on both sides of it. There's also been some you know, uh, unquestionably positive developments recently that are striking a lot of interest, and we should maybe talk about some of those. Mm. Uh, the fact that firms like CME, and NASDAQ are, are announcing new products around Bitcoin and are going to open the door to institutional investors, I think, coming into the space is actually a pretty significant deal. It's certainly legitimizing uh, Bitcoin as an asset class. When firms like CME offer products that have to be approved by regulators and have been approved. The growth statistics that are being reported by businesses like Coinbase signing up over 100,000 people on, on single days, those cannot be you know easily dismissed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does appear that interest is, is growing dra- dramatically and we're getting the kind of hockey, the famous Silicon Valley hockey stick effect and yeah. the network effect. And that's all, I think, propelling the price much, much higher. Mm-hmm. Okay. So before we delve into the hornet's nest,
0: I don't think a lot of people actually really know what Bitcoin is, what cryptocurrency is, what the blockchain is, you know, or, or they've got a vague idea, but they don't really know what it is. So can you talk about what Bitcoin is, what the blockchain is, what cryptocurrency is,
1: the difference between the three, and obviously, the similarity of the three? <laughs> that's a, that's, a, that's a, lot, a lot of terrain to cover. So, so let's start with Bitcoin, which is the most famous cryptocurrency. There's now over a 1,000 cryptocurrencies. The first thing I'll say is that term cryptocurrency is somewhat um, confusing. I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute, but let's let's stay with it for now. What is a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin? To me, a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin is actually a digital alternative currency, and what I mean by that is it's digital in the sense that it's not physical. It's it, there aren't banknotes like we have in our pockets, uh, you know, pound notes here in the UK, dollars, euro notes, and other other markets. It's intangible, it's electronic so it's digital. so it's a digital alternative currency and by alternative currency we mean that it's it's not something that's minted by a central bank. It's not something you can use in most markets to pay your taxes with. It's not something you can you can settle official judge judgments or, or debts so as legal tender. Uh, it's an alternative currency and there's actually a long history of alternative currency. There were thousands of alternative cur- currencies circulating uh, in 2008 before Bitcoin was even invented. And so that for me is a kind of a basic definition for for what is Bitcoin. Blockchain is the underlying technology that enables Bitcoin to exist. Blockchain I think can be credited with, and the invention of blockchain, uh, can be credited with allowing for digital scarcity to be created on the internet in a decentralized way. And that's a really important technological breakthrough. Anyone who's familiar with BitTorrent technology knows that MP3 files, you know, video files, and so on can be easily copied and, and counterfeited in essence. And if you have a digital currency that can be easily counterfeited, easily double spent, that's going to be a disaster. Um, it has to be scarce to be valuable in blockchain. The database that um, tells us who owns what and processes Bitcoin transactions, that technology allows for Bitcoin to be scarce and to have some value. Did i miss anything in the question or was no there... no
0: no that's good okay. uh, you, you've thrown up, away up about five questions uh, which is uh, <laughs> so this thing about decentralization let's go there because mm. i feel like i mean i can't say we're in a decentralization age but if you think about like radio now with this you're 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 being interviewed by me on a podcast i've got 1.23 million subscriptions across the world like That's as much as some national radio stations now. And I'm just a random non-celebrity guy running my mouth off. So podcast is a decentralization of radio. YouTube Mm -hmm. is a decentralization of TV. Mm -hmm. And like for decades, maybe centuries, it was all about big corporates sort of having a singular control, if you like. And now social media, anyone can set up a social media page. They can have a million or two million followers. They can get ad revenue of hundreds of thousands of pounds. And to me, I'm seeing the same similar thing happen with cryptocurrencies. There's an artist that you can buy vouchers of her work, and she's called it Bitch Coin. She's a female artist, and you just buy vouchers of her work. And like you said, there are, what, 200 now cryptocurrencies. Over 1,000. Uh, over 1,000. And <coughs> hey, maybe when you're listening to this, it might be 10,000. Who knows? So it, is, there some, is this happening? Am I seeing this right? There's some kind of movement of the decentralization of power, control, business, currency, etc.
1: I think you're absolutely right. This is... Very much part of this broader decentralizing phenomenon, this peer-to-peer economy, the sharing economy, where intermediaries, uh, people like, you know, or institutions like banks that have traditionally kind of sat in the middle, the middlemen are being disintermediated, taken mm-hmm. out of the equation and allowing people to transact directly with each other or more directly. I mean, we still have, you know, in, in well-known peer-to-peer success stories, you know, say Airbnb for example, mm-hmm. you still have Airbnb, the platform, you know, kind of providing that service between you know yeah. the, the 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 tenant or the, the person seeking a flat and the flat owner.
0: Well that's a great example of decentralization whereas you don't have these huge hotel well you do have
1: huge hotels, but now you or I could rent out a room. We go on holiday, we rent out a house. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely and it, it certainly is is push things more towards decentralization. We're going further out on that spectrum. But I think blockchain potentially could take it to a whole nother level where you actually see institutions like Airbnb simply turn into software code with no people sitting in the middle of them making those transactions between the, uh, the the person looking for a flat and the flat owner happen with just a contract, a smart contract really, which is just software code living on a blockchain facilitating a transaction. So we could even see a further disruption of even some of the you know Silicon Valley success stories that have made tremendous profits by becoming kind of a... A dominant uh, platform with a lot of data owned by a Facebook, owned by an Amazon, and so on. There's a lot of things happening in blockchain today that go way beyond Bitcoin that could really threaten kind of the existing Silicon Valley power structure. Mm. Am I right in thinking that the ledger of um, Bitcoin is uh, public? Yes. Yeah. The the database, the Bitcoin blockchain, is is a public, you know, queryable database. And while the identities of the trans people transacting on it uh, can be hidden from, from public view, the transactions themselves are all publicly viewable. And that's really different from our traditional financial system, where if you apply for an account at a bank, you know, the bank gets to know and see your transactions, but the general public can't see Garrick's you know, uh, credit card transactions. Those are only viewable by the bank and maybe some of the regulated or, or their partners. Uh, whereas with Bitcoin. You know, if a person's transacting on Bitcoin, they can see anyone can see that transaction, Mm. but they may not know who's actually behind it. So, for things maybe like voting, and may you know, and
0: maybe functions that currently the government control, where there's not full visibility, the blockchain might be a good solution to that.
1: Absolutely, voting is one of my favorite examples of kind of you know helping people think where this technology can go beyond money, beyond currency. Because if you, th- you think about today, uh, it's not possible for, for people generally to actually check to see if their vote was actually counted in an election. Mm. It's, uh, it's an act of faith when we vote that our votes are counted. If you could imagine a blockchain-based voting system, if you will, it would allow you to have, say, an anonymous alphanumeric ID that not everyone would you know, know was associated with you, allow you to vote using that ID, but then you could go on to the public ledger after the election. And see, oh, there's my ID, and I see my, my, my vote counted in the column that leads to this result. So I know my vote was a part of forming that result. I can check to make sure my vote was counted. You know, That could be in, in the UK and other maybe places where election fraud is not as big of an issue. I'm, I don't know if it is or isn't here, but mm. um, you know, maybe this doesn't sound very very interesting. But, but in many countries around the world, election fraud is a huge problem. This could be an absolute game changer for, for transparency, for legitimacy, mm. for good governance.
0: Mm. So... Like, I feel like there's sort of a a classic free market thing going on with Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, whatever. So it's, what are we, are we nine years in or about a decade into? Uh,
1: January, uh, 3rd of January 2009 was when the Bitcoin system went into operation. So just about nine years old. Yeah. So in terms of a market, that is
0: really young. You know, if you think of the insurance industry or anything like that, that's centuries old so you know generally in a new market you don't have any regulation because the market isn't understood yet so you know you get the real sort of disruptors and the um you know the entrepreneurs going in and trying to sort of you know set this thing up and hack this thing and make it go wild like all these people are setting up all these cryptocurrencies at the moment so then you get all the you get the fast growth but then also you get the fast declines, uh, and then you know maybe as competition comes in the market starts to mature. So how do you see this crypto market? You know, Do you still think we're very young into it? Do you see <clears throat> it ever getting regulated? If so, you know, is that like a decade away? I know that's a huge question,
1: but have a go. Sure. No, I, I think it's an excellent point that, that nine years is not a lot of time. And it's, it, it's really remarkable what's been accomplished in those nine years. I mean, for the first year plus of Bitcoin's existence, it was worthless. You know, people gave it away, Mm. you know, 2011, autumn 2011. Was it mostly used on the Silk Road as well? Was it mostly used for sort of illegal purchases? After it started to establish some value, and and there was that famous first Bitcoin transaction in the spring of 2010 when uh, a gentleman in Florida offered on the internet uh, the option of uh, paying for uh, pizza with his Bitcoin. Mm. So he he famously bought a couple pizzas with 10,000 Bitcoin. My Mm. goodness, those (laughs) pizzas are worth, I don't know what, uh, is that eleven? 11 million or billion, I, I, I don't even know now, right? yeah. but, but uh, a lot of money right uh, now. But back then, people could you know, throw 10,000 Bitcoins around like there were nothing. There was a, a bloke who famously uh, threw out his hard drive that had some 7,000 Bitcoins here in the UK. And his, you know there were camera crews out filming him looking for this thing in the dump. Right. Um, so so for, you know, for a while, Bitcoin wasn't really worth a lot. And then it had some problems in 2011. Wired Magazine in the autumn declared Bitcoin dead. Big, big story the rise and fall of Bitcoin after the great Bitcoin crash of 2011. But here we are today. It survived that. It survived the big crash in 2014 after the Mt. Gox hack and has continued to push its way upwards. So it's showing an incredible amount of resilience. And the growth rate has really started, I think, to shift from a linear growth rate to a more exponential hockey stick shaped mm. one just of late. You know, we've gone from three to six million users. We estimated in April of, of this year, to I think closer to twenty million, and these are conservative estimates today. And and we're starting to get this network effect potentially, where where we could see growth really radically, mm. ratchet up here quickly. And social media, another network, will be accelerating that, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I, I've called I've called you know Bitcoin and cryptocurrency a minor economic miracle. Mm. That's not even uh, so minor necessarily anymore. When you have the total value. Of all cryptocurrency, over three hundred billion. I mean, the largest banks in the world, the most powerful banks, banks like Goldman Sachs, are you know a third of that, hundred billion, roughly, in terms of their value. Um, you're starting to see, you know, cryptocurrency as a whole, you know, encroach on the value of companies like Facebook. Um, this isn't so minor anymore, but it's still an absolutely incredible uh, feat for to go from zero in two thousand nine to where Bitcoin is today. Especially given what it's doing, it is a non-state backed currency an asset with only mathematics, cryptography and computing infrastructure really standing behind it and uh, you know, currencies are very very difficult to, uh, you know, at least in, historically speaking to to, uh, to get people to adopt, you know, once you're kind of on a particular currency on a bus, if you will, there's a lot of temptation and, and Incentives to stay on that bus and not get off that well, bus onto another one. Well,
0: then you but you need absolute trust for a
1: currency, don't you? And so anything new, if you don't have absolute trust, you're not going to do it. And that's, I think that, that point on trust is, is crucial because I think at the heart of what blockchain is, it's really about trust. It's about using this new technology to create trust where trust did not exist uh, and to create a you know, trust minimizing or lower trust environment mm. uh, than the ones we're used to occupying through software rules infrastructure. Mm. So do you think it was designed,
0: I know there's this mysterious man who apparently created it, who no one knows who this is. So do you think it was designed in mind to not have individual control, power, greed to be able to manipulate it? Is it a bit of a, a two-finger salute to the banks, if you
1: like. There's, I think, I think you know, a lot of people speculated on what Satoshi Nakamoto's motivations were. Satoshi, uh, in in his or her writing, you know, was very business-like and and you know focused on you know like making the code more optimized, better, and so on. There's little hints you, you find about you know references to the financial crisis in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. You know, uh, and other things that do suggest that Satoshi had a libertarian cypherpunk uh, orientation. Uh, These are people, the cypherpunks uh, have very interesting history, uh, very concerned about privacy. Uh, Certainly, Bitcoin has some privacy uh, capacity capabilities built into it. Um, But also, uh, you know, a lot of people are interested in Bitcoin not because they're interested in privacy or, you know, giving. uh, you know, or, or, or because they dislike central banks or something, they actually look at it as a, a technology that actually is very efficient, faster, better, cheaper, uh, can allow for a much more, you know, next generation infrastructure around finance and so on to be built. So there's people come to this for different reasons. Mm. So there's these, you mentioned earlier,
0: these polarized extremes of, wow, this is an amazing disruptive technology. Uh, it's a scam. I don't think it's a scam. I think it's neither, a, neither do I. A I new, think a scam. A scam,
1: a scam implies that there is a, a schemer at the heart of this who is looking to to defraud people. You know, Bitcoin may not have intrinsic value um, in the same way that something like gold, which we use for jewelry and so mm. on, may have, or cigarette, a uh, very uh, popular alternative currency yeah, in prisons, and, prisons yeah, and, yeah. and after the war uh, in Berlin yeah. and so on. Um, may not have the same kind of intrinsic. You know, utility. Uh, utility. Yeah. Well, I, I, this is where I argue it does have the intrinsic utility. I think, right. it, I think it has usefulness built into it in the sense that it's actually very easy, uh, relatively easy to store, to transfer, and uh, to use for various purposes. So it has that usefulness built in. And that's, along with its scarcity, is what's driving demand. So it has yes. the usefulness plus the scarcity. That's why Bitcoin is worth something. If it didn't have this usefulness, if it didn't have the scarcity, there wouldn't be demand for it.
0: Yeah. That being said, just because everyone kept asking me about it, I decided, right, I'm going to start talking about this. I'm not going to talk about something unless I'm in it, because it's just not my way. So I went in. And so I went in on Bitstamp. I'm not recommending anyone does follow what I do. I just did. And that site looks like some Eastern European hackers just whooped it together. It doesn't... It's not like the Barclays banking app, you know, where you feel like there's trust to put it in. And so you're like... You take your... You take your um, you go down to Barclays Bank and you're trying to pay through into this bit stamp, and it doesn't look very legit. And no one in Barclays knows about it. And you're sending your money to Slovenia, and then it says it'll be a day, and it takes three days, and there's this big wait. And then you've got you're supposed to take it out there and store it on a wallet. So I buy this Trezor, which is this wallet, and <laughs> it's not easy, you know. I know you said it's got utility, and it and it. And, but yet it's still so young, it's not actually that easy to buy
1: it. I, I think that's right. It's the, the user experience is is not great still. Because it's nine years old, I guess. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, you know, a few months back, you know, we only had a handful, few million people maybe using this. So picture has changed a lot just in the last six months. And I think you're gonna see, you know, probably a much better user experience because more resources are coming in to support mm. better design. And the you tech- look, if you could, sorry just to interrupt yep. you, but like if I went on these
0: platforms and there was trust on these platforms Uh, And you could get your money in, and it's in like that. That reduces the friction of going in, so more people Mm -hmm. will surely be able to get in. Because my business partner wants to get in, but as soon as he saw the user interface, it's like no way am I putting (laughs) my money into that.
1: No, I I think that's a very fair point, Uh, and and uh, you know, this is a regulated, you know, money and finance is something the state is very very concerned about, interested in, obviously, and so there's probably going to be you know, some, some uh, speed bumps along the way, even if the user interface imp- improves with getting money transferred in and out and so on. And we can argue about whether those are good or bad mm. things to have, um, you know, there's different views on this, but, but I think, you know, absolutely the, the user experience today is, is not great. I, you know, I've paid for a, a Sunday roast in a Cambridge pub with Bitcoin. It was right. a terrible experience because yeah. the internet connection inside the pub was awful. Uh, the transaction, you know, was difficult to make happen. Uh, you know, the the person behind the, the pub counter didn't really, like, you know, was like, what? You want to do this? No one ever comes in here and tries to pay with Bitcoin. So, so uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of problems with Bitcoin uh, and cryptocurrency today from a user experience. Completely agree with that. Mm,
0: okay. Um,
1: and I guess as
0: more people get in and, you know, there's more people setting up user interfaces, more people into the market, then people reinvest, innovate, improve the, the service, reduce the
1: friction, increase the speed. That's right but I, I think it's important to understand that you know there you know you mentioned the regulatory regulated side of this there are fewer safeguards regulatory safeguards now we can debate about how safe you know bank accounts are and, mm. and deposit insurance I mean the Cyprus example from you know 4 years ago yeah,
0: that, I mean I think people love to get into the conspiracy theory but yeah. that's,
1: so, there's so few experiences of that or occurrences yes. in such a long time Absolutely yeah. and, and 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 so but but uh you know our research showed that roughly about half of exchanges, for example, have some type of government license. Um, yeah. So there's clearly less regulation of this space than there are of traditional financial services. And it's mm. something for people to be aware of. Because that has a downside and an upside, doesn't it? It does, yeah. it absolutely does. Um, it's a bit of the Wild West still. You know, there's maybe higher reward, but there's higher risk. Mm. and. You know, even if you were smart about buying Bitcoin years ago, a lot of people lost their Bitcoins. They were hacked, stolen. Uh, you know, uh, there's there's an estimate that some four million Bitcoins of the seventeen million that exist today are permanently lost. Wow. Uh, you know, because of either incompetence or people didn't care or someone stole them or, you know, who knows what. So, right. um, you know, it's a challenging space. You really got to do your homework if you're going to get into it.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we'll come back to that. So back to this scam thing then, because I think we both agree. The technology, the currency, it's not a scam. But I guess there's a plenty of snake oilers out there, you know, seeing the, that you always get that in a new free market. Oh, look, you know, the, a new thing, we can make loads of money out on it. Oh, okay, well, let's sell the shovels instead of, you know, <laughs> the, the, the digging for the gold. I guess you have to have your wits about you for that, do you?
1: Sure. And this is probably a good time to mention initial coin offerings, which is an incredibly, uh, you know, uh, interesting phenomenon. Uh, an initial coin offering has a lot in common with crowdfunding, so people may be familiar with platforms like Kickstarter, mm. where projects, say, a new uh, type of smartwatch, are funded, uh, bootstrap by the community, and you get early access to the product. You, know, you get to help see it come into existence. Initial coin offerings are ways where people who own cryptocurrency can invest in seed-stage technology, and this is actually kind of really exciting in some ways. For the first time, you know, the little guy out there. Can can now be a VC, a venture capitalist investing in early stage technology. You just have to have an internet connection anywhere in the world, a little bit of cryptocurrency, and you can buy into these uh, initial coin offerings. At the same time, there are clearly a number of you know fraudsters who are pushing ICOs and taking advantage of less sophisticated investors who have fewer resources to do due diligence and 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 really check to make sure they're they're investing in the right teams, technologies, and so on. So you know there's a view in the industry that that you know some people are very short-term bearish on on the ICO phenomenon that a lot of these projects are going to blow up mm. but they're long-term bullish because it's opening up access in a way that really is empowering and gives people more choice and more investment options and could allow you know the little guy to become a venture capitalist too that's yeah. that's interesting sure i mean i feel like all
0: these new cryptocurrencies that are popping up and all these ICOs. It's a bit like the startup world. They're essentially startup businesses. And you know mo- most of those fail. It's just numerically, we all know the numbers. What is it, 80% in the first year, another 80% of those in the next three and so on. So yeah, because I mean, the industry is so young. What are your thoughts on that?
1: No, I, I agree with that. I, I think it's very important that people understand that VC investing is very high risk. It always has been uh, and and the numbers you cite I think are you know, are right right on I mean So expect to and this is why you're seeing people investing across the spectrum of right. ICOs too. saying okay I don't know who's the next Amazon uh, But I think an Amazon or an Alibaba is going to emerge out of this 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 ICO phenomenon this blockchain space And so I need broad exposure because mm. you know, that's one approach to take it's uh, it's very it's very it's very early I would say and, and hard to know who's gonna you know, or if anyone's gonna be the the next Amazon of blockchain
0: mm.
1: Okay, so Something we haven't quite talked about, but you've mentioned, is the supply-demand
0: thing. Hmm. So I think one of the reasons why I wanted to get into Bitcoin and saw past its just the emotion of it, because I think a lot of emotion is driving it up, is the fact that there's a, a very finite amount. What is it? Twenty-one million in total. That's right. Yeah, and that's not a lot. Um, and what did you say? 17 million seventeen million's been mined already. Seventeen million. Yep. So there's only four million left to mine. Right. Um, so. I love investing, I invest in watches, um, cars, art, property, and in all of those, the, un- the single underlying phenomenon other than human behaviour is supply-demand, you know, mm. if you have uh, not many and everyone wants it, it goes up in value, and, and I just, that, I, I really see that in um, Bitcoin. What are your
1: thoughts on that? That certainly is, I think, incredibly attractive to many people who are looking for something that's arguably scarcer than gold. I mean, in theory, we can keep exploring the universe, you know, going out to the asteroid belt beyond Mars and yeah. mining gold there and, and beyond, right? Um, and the other thing that's interesting, too, is that as the price of gold increases, because uh, Bitcoin is compared to gold a lot, it's considered yeah. digital gold, you'll see more mining activity of gold start to take place. So, you know, price goes up, also that that- Deposit that was further down that was too unprofitable to mine all of a sudden is now profitable, and so supply starts to increase yeah. alongside the increase uh, in price of gold. And that doesn't happen with Bitcoin. When the price of Bitcoin goes up, that has no impact really on the the supply of Bitcoin. So it's it's different in that way from other commodities like gold, platinum, and so on. So which you just can't. It's just impossible to produce more. Well, so this is, I think, an important point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so right now, hard coded into the software protocol of Bitcoin is a fixed limit of twenty one million coins. That is a rule based in software that, in theory, could be altered. Who would alter that? Um, Well, the community um, that influences the governance and direction of the Bitcoin protocol. Could one day conceivably say, you know what? We think actually we do need to grow the supply a little bit more. It's too scarce. It's, getting, um, uh, it's not being adopted as widely as it could if it has some new supply coming onto the market. I'm not predicting that this happens. All I'm just saying is that there are arguments and there is the possibility for one day, say, changing that rule. That rule can be changed. There would be a lot of resistance. Ooh. And today it would be inconceivable that any such proposal would be considered. But down the road, uh, maybe. We don't know. Mm. So do you think governments, central
0: banks, you know, and when people say governments and central banks with their conspiracy theories, I don't think they really know who they're talking about. But, (laughs) you know, like there was news of it being banned in China and all this kind of thing. Do you think there's going to be resistance from the... The bigger powers.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was just at the Bank of England last week giving a lecture in the Tech Fortnight uh, program they put on on cryptocurrency to about 150 people at the bank. Uh, you know about you know some of the the you know interesting aspects of this uh, from the central bank's perspective. So right now, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency are, are more of an asset, more of a crypto asset. Yeah. I think that's a term that actually we should be using more of to describe this space than cryptocurrency. Yeah, I agree,
0: it's not really being used in its initial desired form, isn't it? I haven't gone in to spend it. I've gone in to hopefully, well, I'm speculating, not investing, I'm taking a risk. But yeah, explore that part. It's not really, it's just being used to.
1: Store money, isn't it? I think, I think, yes. And, and so, partly in Bitcoin's case, the sorry to interrupt. No, no, that's again. No, no, it's okay. No, I, this is, I think, a really important point. I, I think, you know, there's such a knowledge gap, and, and people are really confused about this whole Bitcoin phenomenon and what it is. A lot of people don't have a great understanding of what money is, and it's not their fault. They, Ooh. you know, we're not taught in, in high school and secondary schools, and even in economics 101 that, you know, the, the money, the notes, and coins in our pockets that the Bank of England mints represent a small fraction of the total money supply mm. in existence yeah. um, you know actually commercial banks are the ones that make most of our money when they make loans uh, and, and that's a privately run for-profit institution you know Barclays etc uh, making loans creating a lot of the money and so it has some commonality with privately created bitcoins mm. um, but there's confusion around money is the point and then you you put into that this technology and, and everything and people really get lost and 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 uh, the, the, the term cryptocurrency implies, okay, it's a currency like the pound, I would use this to go buy pizza or something. But, but as we talked about, buying things with Bitcoin is not a great experience. And it doesn't feel good to, to spend a currency that you think might be going up in value either. So people are hoarding their crypto assets, you know they're treating crypto coins like Bitcoin as an asset more than they are as a currency, even though it is used for, for some purchases. And so I prefer the term crypto asset to describe kind of where cryptocurrency is today because of this kind of desire to invest in it. It it looks like 80 90% or more of the people who are getting into it now are getting into it for for investment reasons, not to use it as an alternative currency or form Mm. of money. And so I think that term should be used more to describe this space. And and the scarcity, I think, that we talked about is a really important part of why uh, these assets are desirable vis-a-vis, say, other assets that that aren't uh, as desirable. Now, to come back to your question on the Bank of England and central banks and the powers that be, if, if Bitcoin is simply going to be digital gold, if it's going to be an, a new asset class, which increasingly is looking like it will be with CME and these other institutions coming on board, that's not as interesting to a central bank and, their con, you know, and how they conduct monetary policy as it would be if Bitcoin became a currency and a payment system that rivaled the pound, the dollar or something like that. That is what is the big issue for a central bank, because that affects how they influence the the economy through monetary policy. If bitcoin's just like a da Vinci, you know it gets really valuable, sells for four hundred and fifty million. you know so what central mm. banks don 't care about the fact that Da Vinci went for four hundred fifty million um, you know so digital gold story, not that interesting. new currency in competition with the pound. okay, now we need to maybe start being a bit more concerned mm. okay now.
0: Uh, my experience of getting into Bitcoin wasn't that easy. Uh, and I know that there's more than one way to get into cryptocurrency because um, on my Hargreaves Lansdowne app, I can actually almost buy in as a fund that invests into cryptocurrencies. And then, of course, I've bought in directly. Um, and I know other people use some apps where it, they diversify money across all um, cryptocurrencies. So can you just explain a bit
1: about the different ways to, to buy in? Right. So... Great question. Um, there are a variety of ways to to buy cryptocurrency, And I'd still say on the whole, they're not that easy as your experience, mm-hmm. I think, you know uh, suggests. Uh, There's you can actually arrange to meet up with someone in person um, through various websites to do a cash for cryptocurrency exchange (laughs) Now, I don't necessarily recommend doing this Your sports bag. Yeah, (laughs) exactly And and there's been some reports of some people pulling out a knife, you know at these exchanges and and, and, you know trying to because once digital currency um, cryptocurrencies are like cash once they've been transferred It's it's nearly impossible to reverse that transaction Mm. Uh, And so when you transfer your Bitcoin to someone and they they walk off, you know, good luck trying to get that back Um, You know, that's what makes them very attractive for criminals, for example Um, uh, So so, you know, you can do an in-person meetup Uh, You can go I think the most common way is to do exactly what you did is to link your bank account to an exchange transfer your national currency into that exchange and buy cryptocurrency Uh, and the user experience varies from country to country. Some places, it's much more seamless, and, and you can put a credit card down even, can happen quite quickly. Uh, other places don't even allow you to do that. There are countries where it's even illegal to do this, uh, or there just isn't the infrastructure in place yet. To... Why are some countries making it illegal? So so Bolivia, Ecuador, for example, I think were two early countries to, uh, to outlaw the use of Bitcoin. Iceland, while they had capital controls, made it illegal to use Bitcoin to transfer funds in and out. The common denominator I've observed between the countries that are heavily regulating or outlying cryptocurrencies is capital controls, which are restrictions on moving funds outside the country. And typically, these are countries that have had financial crises. They've, in Ecuador's case, they they don't even have their own currency; they they use the U.S. dollar. So they have a long history of financial problems, and uh, you know, uh, and people have left the national currency for a foreign currency. And so, if People have done that once in Ecuador or Zimbabwe. Maybe they could do that again and flee to Bitcoin. And again, the government would uh, find that troubling for a variety of reasons. So it's not really an anti-Bitcoin. It's just sort of general policy. Trying to keep more control over the financial system, really, I think, is is what it's about. But but you know, it does it does raise a point here that that you know, Bitcoin could, in theory, uh, or some cryptocurrency that hasn't even been invented yet. We talk about Bitcoin a lot, but it's important to. To know that you know Bitcoin doesn't have a permanent lock on being the number one mm. currency by any means, it could it could be disrupted. Um, that some uh, cryptocurrency could threaten financial you know financial and government institutions um, because it, it could it could compete effectively with them on you know scarcity as a faster, cheaper way to to be to make payments, uh, and also it's less prone to you know manipulation, arguably by governments, and that's attractive to many people who have been in countries like. Argentina, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, where you know the currency's been debauched, and and uh, you know you really are you, you need to protect your family in those countries. Look for alternatives other than the national currency. Okay, so I also
0: know other people that have got in by essentially buying in to Bitcoin as if it were a managed fund. I don't know. To me, that doesn't make much sense, and I'm just putting my opinion out here. This is not advice, but. You know, like if you're going to go in Bitcoin as a volatile investment and you're going to speculate, go into the currency as opposed to getting
1: a fund manager to (coughs)
0: spread it across all of them. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: It's an interesting, it raises a really interesting question, uh, which is, you know, Bitcoin was really created uh, to create peer to peer cash um, where there would not be a third party really standing between Mm. you and the person you're transacting with. And yet, and yet we've seen um, very successful businesses that really are kind of becoming crypto banks uh, emerge because a lot of people don't totally trust themselves with kind of managing private keys. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wanna have someone do that for them. If you lose your private key, your password in essence to your Bitcoins, your Bitcoins are gone. I um, mean, they still exist in the world, but, but uh, you, d- you don't have access to them. And so many companies uh, have been quite successful offering the service to, to customers to make it easier for them where they have less responsibility. At the same time, you know, individuals who hand over their private keys or control their private keys to these businesses ultimately don't really control their Bitcoins. Mm. And so you're really trusting a third party, a business, to do this for you. And whether or not that's uh, the right approach or not, I think, is debatable and depends on each person and the, and the circumstance.
0: Yeah. And I guess also there's going to be fees. You know, that's
1: what you get, isn't it, when you, when you, when you invest into markets? this fees in and out. Absolutely, you're bringing the middleman back into yes. cryptocurrency, and so you know with, with regards to a fund, um, you know there, you know there's been a lot of work done on a Bitcoin exchange traded fund and trying to create one of those in the U S. So so um, people with insurance or sorry uh, with retirement plans and so on can invest in Bitcoin. You know that's really attractive in, in some ways because it opens up a new channel of funding to come into the space makes it easier for people who have a brokerage account to easily get into bitcoin without having to say open up a an account at a bitcoin exchange and so on but at the same time you're you're getting away from the original idea of bitcoin which is to really eliminate kind of third parties and their involvement in this process so it's important to understand that mm.
0: one thing i think about bitcoin is it's just really exciting i <laughs> mean you know like how often in our lifetimes have we seen such a disruption to currency? I mean, I wrote a book called Money, and I, tra- I had to track back thousands of years to find all the different things like atlas stones and sardines and all these random things that got used as currency in niche areas. But like,
1: for the first time in my lifetime, this could be a legitimate new currency. That's exciting. It's incredibly interesting. And It's, you know, I'm, I've used the term minor economic miracle. I mean, it just... uh you know it shouldn 't I mean we we 're watching the price and it explode, but it 's important to understand this is a, not a, a common phenomenon what we 're observing here um, and uh, you know uh, you know you could be it 's not, it's not inconsistent to hold in your mind the idea that boy what 's happening right now is a classic financial mania and bubble, but also we may be on the cusp of a new era in finance and money you know that these two things could be happening kind of in tandem. And so, uh, you know, it's exciting and scary all at once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it, like, in a way, a lot of it reminds me of like NASDAQ and, you
0: know, penny stocks and this huge bubble. But like you said, behind it, there's a legitimate technology and, and currency. And that's, um, yeah, that is a paradox, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, but I, I think there is growing acceptance. I mean, The Economist, I think, uh, for people uh, listening who, who want to read more about the underlying technology, um, blockchain technology, and what it can be used for, for voting for other things as a system for trust. As a as a database technology, they've done a nice job, I think, writing in clear prose why this process improvement that is blockchain how it could play a similar similar role in economic advancement as say double entry bookkeeping accounting the the advent of joint stock companies and other kind of process enhancements that have really laid important cornerstones for the advance of, of you know, uh, economic growth and capitalism. Mm.
0: OK, so you did a talk for us. So thank you for that. Very kind. We've just caught up afterwards. And you said, you know, you're not going pro or anti cryptos and Bitcoin, you want to offer a balanced view, you. And you, you shared some factors that you thought might affect it going up or down. And, you know, you, you, like, I don't want to, and I know you don't want to go prophesize, um, because I think that's a mugs game.
1: But um, could you share some factors that you think might drive the price up or down? Right. So the technology is still complicated. The user experience is complicated. I think you know when it comes to um, you know people you know don't need to understand what SMTP is, the protocol that allows email to work. Um, but it's just email. You know, it's not as you know core and, and important to us as money. And so I think you know demystifying, helping people become more under more comfortable with what's under the bonnet. Uh, helping them understand what's actually happening, I think, is a, is a barrier to wider adoption. People are conservative about their, their money, right? Yeah, well, that,
0: that stopped me getting in. And in the end, I got someone who I told you before we started, he went in at $20 and then $50. Back in 2013, he's a proper crypto nerd. He loves it. He's a conspiracy theorist. He thinks the banks are all insolvent and it's over. And he had to, he had, on WhatsApp, we spent hours him walking me through getting in. And I do, I, a part of me, the reason I wanted to do this interview with you and to talk about Bitcoin is. I want to give people the fair warning as well as the excitement. It's like you want someone helping you. I think, if you know, if you get in, sorry to to just jump in there. Yep. So yeah, so um, keep talking. What's going to make it go up and down?
1: Yeah, so I mean, you know, people, I think you know, know that also cryptocurrencies are used in various uh, criminal activity. Ransomware has become a common use. We had you know here in the UK, uh, NHS hospitals infected, and, and the, the the cyber criminals asking for payments to unlock computers in bitcoin you know that certainly rightfully i think raises uh, the concerns uh, in law enforcement about how this technology is you know enabling facilitating bad bad activity at the same time law enforcement also has uh, seen some benefits with crime being committed on on blockchain because you know when you catch a criminal who uh, who who is say using Bitcoin and you get you get their wallet software you get in essence their books right. you get a you get a paper a digital paper trail basically of their criminal activity and you may be able to recover some of those bitcoins very different from catching a cash criminal where you may not have any of that so law enforcement starting to see some advantages you know with terrorism you know kind of uh, something that this week you know there was a question that came up in a White House press briefing and Sarah Huckabee the secretary said that Homeland Security is is monitoring the situation. They're probably monitoring it as a terrorist issue right um, okay, that could be really bad for cryptocurrency no question about it if terrorists started using this technology widely, I think it'd be realistic to, ex- to expect some kind of major crackdown um, at the same time you know if you kind of know who uh, controls certain wallet addresses and 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 uh, if they're terrorists there's probably going to be several transactions between the time something starts moving and, and a terrorist event is is committed. And so you could actually use blockchain, potentially, to you know, monitor and actually you know, intercede before an event occurs, unlike cash, where there's literally you know, no record like that. So, so there are some advantages from, from law enforcement's perspective. Um, so regulation, though, is a big question mark, though. Mm. It's, it's certainly one of the things. If, if countries did get together, major ones, united and cracked down, that could you know, really kind of bring a lot of this party to an end but you have countries also like Japan that have actually legalized Bitcoin. Third largest economy in the world has made Bitcoin and cryptocurrency legal. Uh, that would be something that would have to be undone in the case of Japan to, to, you know, for this crackdown to occur. Um, I think one of the, you know, Bitcoin as a digital asset is looking more and more like a it, it's starting to establish itself you know, as a new asset class. So as a, as a crypto asset, as a, a, a new store of value this space is starting to look more and more like it has a future. The bigger question is, will it ever be a currency uh, and used widely for payments? Um, you know, The big driver, I think, potentially, of, of where cryptocurrency could become a more widely used currency is the machine-to-machine economy, uh, where Internet of Things devices are transacting with each other and starting to get paid in cryptocurrency. That is the biggest barrier to adoption of Bitcoin as a cryptocurrency, as a currency, is the fact that we aren't paid in the currency, and so mm-hmm. you know, there's this extra step that needs to be taken to go out and acquire it and then start using it, and it's a cumbersome experience as we've talked about. Mm-hmm. But machines, uh, the experience could be a lot better uh, for them, and, and if you're looking for a way to integrate today an open, programmable, extensible type of currency and payment system onto a machine-to-machine economy or IoT application, Cryptocurrency ticks a lot of the right boxes. Um, and so you could see this taking off in, in the machine to machine economy, machines getting paid, and maybe that increases the volumes, the, 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 the activity, and, and people get more comfortable using it as a currency over time. Mm. Okay. And then, this sort of these common market
0: forces that are in play, you know, sort of human emotions, how do you think that's driving
1: the price at the moment? Well, I think, I think it's, I mean, it, to me, what's happening right now does look, like a mania. Mm. Um, I was in Silicon Valley, San Francisco during the dot-com uh, run-up and, and bust. I've seen this before. What people what need was to remember, that like? yeah, I mean it has some similarities in terms of the feel, you know, the the you know, you read about people, you know, how they invested in tech stocks then and how they're investing in cryptocurrency now, mortgaging their house and so on. Yeah. You know, there's definitely some activities here that so should raise over some alarms. Excitement, also. come greed. And a yeah. lot of people lost money in the tech bubble. But there were some winners. You know, I mean, Amazon, if you look at their long-term price chart, you, you can't even see the, the, the correction in Amazon's price yeah. uh, uh, from 2000, 2001 compared to where it is now. Mm. Um, you know, and so you know, that, this story could play out in a similar way. I think there's good reasons to kind of make the comparison between that, that uh, internet kind of run up and, and what's happening now. You know, there's going to be losers. There's no question mm. about it. People are going to lose money. People have lost money. Um, but there could be some big winners as well.
0: Yeah. So things like make sure you understand how to get your money in. Get someone to make like I got someone to help me who's already in. Get the money in. Only put money you can afford to lose in. You we were talking about this before. Yes, weren't we? You people people are talking to me about investing. I don't think anyone at the moment is investing in Bitcoin. I think they're speculating. How can you know you're investing in? So you can invest in property. It's two hundred years old. Do you see it as an investment, or do you still see it in the speculative phase?
1: I think it's it's more of a speculative speculative phase, and and it doesn't offer cash flows. Bitcoin doesn't offer cash flows like you know treasury bonds or you know or or stocks. Income, you know yeah. there aren't there aren't dividends, right? Um, you know you could argue that you know when when the chain forks um, and you get Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin Gold, it's kind of like a special dividend. Um, you know uh, you know for Bitcoin holders because you get access to this new currency for free, and it seems like free money, but. Mm. But uh, it's, it's a new asset class. We're, we're in the process of figuring out how to value it. Um, there may be uh, really uh, sound valuation techniques that can help us um, arrive at kind of what is a clear network value for some of these tokens. Uh, I'm actually doing some work on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are all still under development and haven't really been tested. We don't know how cryptocurrencies as, a, as an asset class are going to hold up in a great financial correction. If we have another 2008-style meltdown, or say the tech sector melts down, um, it's unclear what mm. will happen with the cryptocurrency space. Is it going to be a hedge and in, 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 in something that actually performs relatively well? Uh, as a safe harbor even, uh, you know during these kinds of major economic events, or is it going to go down like everything else? You know, open question. Mm. I think when you see such
0: fast growth and hard drops, you realize it's just any bit of news can make it ding dong up and down Hence, well, volatility.
1: Absolutely, mm. and, and you know, you know, three hundred billion sounds like a big number in terms of the cryptocurrency market cap, but it's not. I mean, yeah. big markets, gold's worth seven eight trillion, roughly so yeah. four x one point four quadrillion, or something crazy. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. Bitcoin's a, a, a tiny drop in the bucket. Um, you know, and, and that's one of the reasons why institutions and hedge funds have just not gotten into it. It's just too small to be interesting to them. Mm. Uh, there is it lacks the liquidity that they would need to to make this interesting. And it's also Difficult to short, so it's actually difficult to bet against the price of Bitcoin. the The investment playing field is, has been lopsided uh, in favor of the bulls. Mm. Um, now that structurally is starting to maybe shift with uh, CME and Nasdaq and others bringing futures markets that are going to allow people to profit on the price going down. Right. Um, that could change the investment landscape and mm. maybe not for for the better if you're a bull. Mm. Okay, so I want to respect your
0: time, so I'll sum up in a minute, but you said something out of the blue. You said forks and Bitcoin <laughs> cash. And it's like, we've just done the 101. This sounds like a bit. So what what is a, a fork in <laughs> and what is Bitcoin cash? And
1: right. OK, wow. Um, have yeah. We just opened a Pandora's <laughs> box. Yeah. You've got so a flight to catch, haven't you? <laughs> wow. So so basically, I think it's important to understand that that, you know, cryptocurrency is open source software. So it's like Linux. You know, you can you can copy and paste the Linux operating system and tweak it, make changes to it, change some parameters and and come up with a new operating system. You can basically do the same thing with Bitcoin or Ethereum. Uh, And there's been disagreements about how to evolve uh, Bitcoin specifically. Should should it be more like Visa and and go from the current, um, well before the fork, three and a half roughly transactions per second, that's the maximum throughput to tens of thousands of transactions per second like Visa can do. Should it be more like Visa or should it be more like digital gold and be really scarce and secure and, 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 and not really focus on trying to process thousands of transactions, but just you know, really focus on security and do something you know, uh, very simple in that regard. And there was a huge debate that paralyzed Bitcoin for a couple of years that arguably opened the door for the rise of Ethereum and other cryptocurrencies and then ultimately came to a head this summer, uh, this year really, with the forks where basically the community split. And, and, and people who wanted to do something more like Visa started something called Bitcoin Cash or Bcash, as it's also being called, a lot of debate about what's the right name for it. Um, whereas the, the people who you know, arguably are more in the security and digital gold camp um, uh, you know, didn't fork and, and, and have stayed with something called Bitcoin. So it's like a,
0: a breakaway
1: between it's the Exactly community. right. And yeah. what's, I think what's absolutely fascinating in this for, uh, from a political governance perspective is that this was kind of a civil war. That was going on inside Bitcoin, uh-huh. and traditionally, civil wars have led to you know violence and you know like you know fights over property and so on. Here, we had a, a you know a break that led to two new currencies without really anybody getting hurt. You know, no actual conflicts in terms mm-hmm. of violence, uh, and so you know it's an interesting kind of governance phenomenon where you can have a civil war that results in kind of a split of the property. And, and in this case, everyone won because does people that not who owned the
0: supply though
1: it, it does increase the supply. But everyone who owned Bitcoin at the time of the fork in July also now owned Bitcoin Cash, right. and and so is it a sense a mirror or something? It's, of- it's yeah. You basically have two coins whereas you have one before. Now some people think that oh, it's going to cause confusion in the marketplace because you know there's two Bitcoins now, and and, and that, there may be some truth to that. But you know from where we sit today, uh, everyone's richer. Mm. Um, you know the people who held Bitcoin. You know, have Bitcoin Cash, and also now something called Bitcoin Gold, which has been developed, which offers a different type of mining algorithm. And this is getting you know a little more technical. <laughs> uh, that that makes basically mining Bitcoin Gold more accessible for the person with your typical laptop. Uh, proof of work is 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 uh, is something that requires a more sophisticated uh, computing chip to do than than no. uh, Bitcoin Gold does. So anyway, so so far it seems to have kind of worked out uh, relatively well, and actually offers some interesting kind of I think uh, lessons on how to conduct a civil war peacefully. Right.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So final question, unless you open up another wormhole (laughs) for us to go down, and that is mining, because I'm I'll tell you a problem I have with Bitcoin as a free market or free market principles. And this is just something I see because it's so young. I see a lot of people getting in saying, hey, I'm mining Bitcoin. I've just bought a rig. And three months ago, I thought they were property investors or they were something else or they you know, they, they work in a shop and now they're a Bitcoin miner. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> so can you sort of talk about what Bitcoin mining is, how to mine
1: and why people mine and maybe the downsides of mining? Right. So this is, this is uh, another can of worms in terms of trying to simply summarize mining and, and its role in, in, in cryptocurrency. So uh, you can think of the miners, the people who run the hardware connected to the internet that are processing Bitcoin transactions as providing really the infrastructure and the payment network um, that make cryptocurrencies work. And they get rewarded for for doing this. They get paid in in the case of Bitcoin in new Bitcoins that are created. So uh, 12 and a half new Bitcoins are created roughly every 10 minutes. And and a lucky miner uh, is given those new Bitcoins if they solve a puzzle uh, before anyone else solves that puzzle and so they get paid with the new bitcoins And then the network starts working on a brand new puzzle and this process just repeats itself over and over, over and over again um, And, and that, that process also helps secure the network And so this is where people usually start getting a little bit lost But I think the important thing to understand here is that people choose choosing to mine are doing so for selfish reasons they're, they're trying to make money doing it and the, the key ingredients to, to successfully mining Bitcoin are, 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 are the following number one uh, most importantly, you have access to cheap or free electricity. And for this reason, a lot of the mining has moved to China. There's a lot of excess hydro capacity there. There's uh, relatively cheap coal. And so people can uh, access cheap electricity to run all this computing hardware. All right. So what, they need cheap electricity because it, it basically sucks so much power to mine Bitcoin, is that? That's, yeah. that's right. And the more, the more computing hardware you can, uh, you can you know, direct at solving this crypto puzzle, the greater your chance. It's like buying more lottery tickets. If you right. spin up thousands of computers, mm. you have a much greater chance of winning this crypto lottery than you if you have just one computer. Right. And so if those computers are ASICs, the specialized computer chips that mine Bitcoin more efficiently than others, your say your standard laptop, you increase your chances even more. And so- This is interesting. So you're saying no one's guaranteed any money to mine Bitcoin. It's- Over a long enough time period, You should win this lottery roughly in proportion to the percentage of the total computing power of the network. So if you had 10% of the computing power of the Bitcoin network, you should be winning 1 out of 10 uh, of these crypto puzzles, these crypto lotteries that are occurring over a long enough time period. Right. Um, Because I've been told that the cost of electricity
0: just to run that will Cost you more than get the coins you might get?
1: Absolutely, and so you hear stories of you know students at universities who get free electricity in their dorms, you know, <laughs> getting getting busted for for uh, running a big crypto rigs, yeah. but you know, or even more recently, pe- people people with their Teslas pulling into uh, Tesla free recharging stations and running <laughs> running mining rigs out of their trunks of their yeah. of their Tesla out of the boot of their cars, uh, it's and basically so stealing electricity. Right, right. So yeah. uh, you know, so there's all sorts of creative ways that people are looking to get cheap electricity. We see a lot of mining activity taking place in cold regions, the northern hemisphere, Iceland, Canada, mm. uh, the Sichuan province of China, where there's, it's mountainous because uh, then you're spending less money on cooling down yes. your hardware. Right. And then also you need a reliable internet connection and then ideally not very many neighbors uh, because these mining facilities can be quite loud. And so you, if you don't have neighbors around, right. like in Sichuan province, uh, low population density, fewer noise complaints.
0: Yeah. So it's not really one for the average person to go and do because I've seen some people comment like, "Hey, yeah, I've got my mining rig. I'm going to mine Bitcoin and make loads of money."
1: Well, I mean, it's something I think you know, depending on your circumstances, location, risk appetite, you can look at actually some of these. You know, Bitcoin mining requires specialized hardware, but Bitcoin Gold with the Equihash uh, algorithm, you know, you know, it's it's designed to actually try to level the playing field. So you know, people with a Mm -hmm. typical laptop. Can, can get more involved. So I, I think it's something you could look at. It's complicated. Um, there's websites out there that help you kind of you know, analyze whether it's profitable or not based on the cost of your electricity and your, your type of hardware you have and so on. Um, but, but certainly, it's, it requires a lot of technical, I think, knowledge to, to do this well.
0: Mm. And then once the 21 million Bitcoin are mined, that's it, no more mining. That that's
1: right so the, well the the, the the theory is is that so Bitcoin miners today get new bitcoins 12 and a half every ten minutes uh, new bitcoins are created um, but also they get transaction fees so Rob if I wanted to send you a Bitcoin right now I could and I wanted it to get to you very quickly I could add a transaction fee right. uh, which could be several pounds actually mm. um, Right now, the fees have gotten quite high, which is reducing the liquidity of it. Uh, it's, it's, it's certainly creating more friction. Yeah, uh, and, and I can't and go
0: and buy my cost of coffee, can I? And charge pay three pounds ten for this, but three pounds ten for the fees. Absolutely, and that's yeah. that's
1: the argument of the, the the people who forked Bitcoin Cash, and 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 you know that that's why they wanted to do this is because Bitcoin's gotten you know ridiculously expensive to use for small transactions. It's still very compelling if you send, say, hundred million dollars yeah. and you only pay you know 10, 10 20 pounds to do that. Mm. Um that's a lot better than the 1% your bank may charge you on you know, some huge, but for small transactions, Bitcoin is not really practical. And so, but, but if I wanted to expedite uh, you know, uh, the, the sending of a Bitcoin to you, I would increase the transaction fee. And then a miner who solved that puzzle would get that transaction fee. And after all 21 million coins are mined, it's those fees that are going to be uh, supporting the infrastructure. The big question yeah. is, is that going to be sufficiently You know incentivizing to maintain this really powerful computing network. The Bitcoin network has more computing power than any other network in history Um, Mm. Google probably represents less than 1% of the total power of of the Bitcoin network. If the power goes down it becomes less secure It becomes easier to hack Um, So how much money uh, People are making heavily influences how much infrastructure and computing power is applied to it Which in turn makes it more secure. So we'll see this is what could lead down the road to maybe some rethinking in that 21 million hard limit. Mm. Okay, so in a moment,
0: I'm just going to ask you to sort of finish with maybe where you think the future is of crypto and Bitcoin and blockchain. Um, Just want to say that um, be very careful (laughs) if you get into Bitcoin. Um, I wanted to, this is the second podcast I've done on Bitcoin. My first was just a bit of a rant about sort of warning people on all the things to watch out for. Um, so if you're going to get in, keep learning about it. Um, where can we follow you, Garrick, so people can continue their education and learn more about Bitcoin and cryptos?
1: Right. So I'm on Twitter. Uh, Garrick Heilman is my, my handle. You I you spell a... Heilman? Sure. It's uh, G-A-R-R-I-C-K-H-I-L-E-M-A-N. Correct. So Garrick Heilman, you can take it, type it into Google. I think it should come up pretty, pretty near the top. I have a website as well where I publish my research. Uh, so those are probably the two best places. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to kind of follow, you know, I, I often will retweet, uh, you know, interviews I give in the mm. press or publish new research. I'll put out a link there, so that's a good good place to go. It's a good question though, uh, because there's a lot of information on the internet. Like where where do I go to learn about um, cryptocurrency and, and and to learn about it in the right way? And and it's a big problem, I'd say, right now actually. Uh, what sources of information can be trusted? Mm. Uh, you know, for example, there's no independent research firm really that's providing high quality. Conflict of interest, free research in the space like you see in, say, other um, asset classes. You know, mm-hmm. there's 34 analysts covering this Facebook stock, for example, uh, and they, you know, have to, you know, uh, you know, uh, abide by securities rules and so on, and 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 declare their conflicts of interest and everything. And, and there's nothing like that today in cryptocurrency. So, so getting good information is a major challenge. It's something actually I'm actually I'm working on and hope to be making an announcement about real soon. Right. Because uh, I think it's a big piece of. Capital markets infrastructure that 's missing from the space that the that space really needs so so you know you can follow me you know there 's other uh, I think people out there who are kind of you know generally well regarded uh, in this space um, you know someone i 'll mention specifically Nick Sabo, uh, he did a podcast with Tim Ferris uh, a while back mm. uh, he 's considered one of the cryptocurrency pioneers, Nick and I. Hoping to, to to work on a uh, cryptocurrency history book at some point. Right. Um, he's certainly one of the people who's more well regarded mm-hmm. um, in the space. As yeah, well. I think in this wild west that we're in, knowing who to get your information from is one of the challenges, isn't it? Huge challenge. Yeah. And and you know, uh, th- this just uh, there's a lot of people talking their own book. You know, you've got to be aware of that that they have direct financial conflicts with, with, with the advice they're giving you um, and, and they're not always declaring those and, mm. and so you just have to be careful and cautious.
0: Mm. Yeah, and actually, just on that note, the reason I got in and I put a, an amount you know, that I could afford to lose was I just wanted to work out how to play it, you know, how, to, how to get in, how to work it. Um, it's a pure speculation, you know, I invest in property and other things for what I see as sort of safer investments. So I just feel like I'm incentivized to learn and study more now and meet and speak to people like you because I've got a vested interest of a small amount of money. You know, if I lost it, I'd be like, oh, well, you know, that could have bought a nice watch. So it's enough that, you know, it makes me interested. But hey, it's still a small amount of money. I'm definitely not advising people to go in or out. In fact, I would just say, look. If you're going to go in, go in with a really small amount of money, stick 50 or 100 quid in or what's a really small amount just to work out the platforms first mm-hmm. and get the right platforms and watch what it does and then get it into your wallet and work out that bit of it first. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then maybe, you know, like I've always pound cost average when I've invested anyway, which is I've not put big lumps in, I've spread them out. Uh, so maybe that's a way of doing it.
1: Sure. I mean, in terms of other places to go for good information, uh, we're starting to see more universities offering, um, you know, uh, educational opportunities uh, on cryptocurrency and blockchain. Um, there's been some courses, uh, some MOOCs that have been run out of Stanford oh. and other places. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, am at the University of Cambridge, so I'm a little biased here, but mm. I do think, generally speaking, universities can probably be uh, considered a, a sem- you know, a better source of information. Probably more um, neutral. I mean, we hope we try yeah. to be, yeah. uh, you know, whether we succeeded that I think is debatable. But but certainly I think, uh, you know, I, looking at the landscape of, of available sources out there, I would point people towards universities as, as a potentially a good source. Mm. Um, you know, whenever you can try to read the primary documents, you know, I think it's, it's not the easiest read for the average person. But I think reading Satoshi Nakamoto's paper, trying to, even if you can't fully grasp uh, the cryptography and some of the aspects of it, just take a look at it uh it's it's worth having a look at some of the primary documents um that that are driving a lot of this um rather just always relying on talking heads like me Mm. um who are interpreting it for you sure oh garrick thanks for your time really appreciate it thank Thank you. you